Are you a killer, Malcolm? Guess we'll find out. It's one blog. That's not the first time that I have been accused of exploitation. In Kenya, when we get to the coastal region, many people believe that disability is caused by a curse. Fumo, Ursuline, and Hassan were told that they would never amount to anything. When these kids climb Mount Kilimanjaro, other children with disabilities can say, hey, I can do something too. I'm Eli, I'm an alcoholic. I'm an actor and I mainly work in TV and film. Are you in anything now? Well, sometimes a show closes and you just move on to the next. It's part of the business. I see. He's not in anything at all. <laughs> what a prick. <gasps> and in the back of my mind, it felt great to fail. Felt comfortable. Welcome to a very special episode of High Tea with Monsters, Rebel Scum, and Vigilantes. This is your host, Brett. You guys, I am so very excited to share today's episode with you and so proud of what we have put together for this special four-part series on independent filmmaking in the time of COVID. For filmmakers and television creators, 2020 has been a year like no other, and bringing projects to bear and before audiences has presented hurdles that were otherwise unimaginable. My three guests today, and for the duration of this four-part series, who I am so honored and privileged to call my friends, have been kind enough to lift the veil on that process for us, which we are kicking off with a roundtable discussion today. What I'm going to do for you is to introduce each of my guests and then play the trailer for their work, and then you'll get to hear a full roundtable discussion between all four of us on the process of independent filmmaking this year. Then over the course of the next two weeks, we will be releasing one-on-one -on -one discussions with each of my guests, including more details as to where you can screen their works, which are not yet widely distributed. So let's get right to it. Chisa Hutchinson is an award-winning playwright and screenwriter and also happens to be a friend of mine dating back to high school in the bubble that was suburban New Jersey in the late 90s. She is the writer behind The Subject, an acclaimed independent festival darling, which follows the character Phil Waterhouse, a successful white documentary filmmaker, as he deals with the fallout from his last film, which caught the murder of a Black teenager on tape. While working on his newest documentary project for a major TV network, someone is filming Phil's every move, threatening his idyllic life. Why you acting broadly because the camera's on, bro? Why you acting broadly because the camera's on? No. Day one. I'm a huge fan. And I'm not just saying that to get you to hire me. I've always been a big fan of film. I mean, all kinds. Greg Starr calling from Variety to congratulate you on your big win. You win, don't forget about me. I mean, getting people to uproot their lives in search of their better selves? Tell me about the, the subjects. I don't know if what I do makes a difference. Are you a killer, Malcolm? Guess we'll find out. It's one blog. That's not the first time that I have been accused of exploitation. This is Alicia Ferris with The Post. I'm wondering if you'd like to comment regarding your role in the death of Malcolm Barnes. I don't know what to do. I never had to deal with no shit like this before. Are you the one that's been filming me? Oh, yeah. You violated my privacy? You wrecked my life! I've been watching you a good long while. What do you want from me? I want you to answer the door, Phil. You all make me famous, right? The subject marks Lanny Zapoy's 
feature film directorial debut and stars Jason Biggs, who you probably know from American Pie and Orange is the New Black in what should be a career-changing turn. It also stars Emmy nominee Anjanue Ellis from If Beale Street Could Talk and the Clark Sisters and Annabella Costa of Ballers and Quantico. My second guest, Phil Knowlton, is the director of Cupenda the Documentary. On the coast of Kenya, where people impacted by disability are often shunned and viewed as cursed, these three determined teenagers set out to challenge their community's long-held stigma and climb Africa's highest mountain, Mount Kilimanjaro. In Kenya, when we get to the coastal region, many people believe that disability is caused by a curse. <laughs> These children, they are left all alone. Sometimes you find that the parents are not giving them the right treatment. I was doing my wildlife research and I passed this school every day on my way to the forest that was for kids with disabilities. We have the hearing impaired, the physically challenged. We also have a group with cerebral palsy. This country has a policy on special needs education advocating for inclusive education. Fumo, Ursuline, and Hassan were told that they would never amount to anything. They might as well just be beggars on the street. When these kids climb Mount Kilimanjaro, other children with disabilities can say, hey, I can do something too. Kilimanjaro is, I think, a bit underrated. They try to do it way too fast. It makes it very difficult to make it to the top. Muslims seemed to be like overwhelmed by the whole thing. I knew she was not giving up. I'm asking for 12 hours. Okay, 12 hours. Up and down. Hassan was complaining of being very cold. They've never experienced anything below 70 degrees. It's very easy to quit. It's very easy to give up. I don't think the people that they tell will understand what they did. Above all, what is the purpose of education? To prepare these children for future societal integration. will prove that disability is not inability. This 70-minute film was recently shown at both the Beloit Film Festival and the Real Abilities Film Festival. Born and raised in Paris, Knowlton became fascinated with the creative world at a young age. Following an internship with hip-hop video icon director Little X, Knowlton landed a once-in-a-lifetime chance to work alongside Beastie Boys' Adam Yock as an editor at Oscilloscope Films. Since then, he has been refining his unique style as a music video, commercial, and film director and editor. Knowlton has directed commercials for Nike, JetBlue, and Ford, while his documentary work has won several awards, including the Documentary Directing Award at the Amsterdam Film Festival. He is currently based in Atlanta, Georgia. Phil is also a proud alum of the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, which is where we were classmates and became friends, and where he ran track and cross country for all four years of his career. He's also recently done work for Rock the Vote. 
My third guest is Ken Perlstein, the creator, director, writer, and star of How Am I Doing, an adult comedy about recovery, family, divorce, pitfalls, and good times. The story of a recovering alcoholic who battles old habits while trying to rebuild his fleeting acting career and regain the respect of his daughter. I'm Eli. I'm an alcoholic. Hello, Eli. Nice for you to show up for your daughter's event. Fuck off. I'm an actor and I mainly work in TV and film. You Eli in that mouth of his seems to be a problem, among other things. Nick. I wouldn't be surprised if he was still drunk from the night before. Are you in anything now? Well, sometimes a show closes and you just move on to the next. It's part of the business. <laughs> I see. He's not in anything at all. I can identify with uh, being lost. You know, making making the wrong choices and knowing it. <laughs> what a prick. Stand, stand Wall Street man. That's what you call them? Yeah, I mean, I was joking with them. Were you? How's that uh, beach house rehab working out for you? I have this demon that tells me that drinking and using is gonna make it all okay again. Fear. Just, you know, fear of, fear of losing my daughter. Uh, but, Becca, I'm, I'm sorry. I just, I didn't mean to embarrass you. His dad was a dick. I know, <laughs> but come on now. You know, I have a fear of not working in my business. I had another client leave me for another agent. Do you want to leave me too? Are you bad in there? Yeah, he really needs his commercial. Oh, and if you are booked, that belly needs to be shaved. This is a medical industrial, not searching for Bigfoot. You know, you've been in this business a long time, Eli. You know that it runs in cycles. Action. You too can now try to recover from wallowing depression. Stabbing yourself with a marker for an audition you're 20 years too young for. Just look at, me. Just look at the me. mistakes. Same mistakes. I'm gonna be late. Hmm. It's okay, we're gonna be fine. We just got the cab, I gotta go. You're lying to her, we're not in a cab. Hey, we will make it, I promise. Wait, you couldn't have asked for a different time? It doesn't work out that way. I don't care how it works. That's not Becca's problem, that's yours. I struggled after that show ended, but I thought we were doing well again when you ended there. Eli, Nick proposed the other night and I accepted. We just set a date. And in the back of my mind, it felt great to fail. It felt comfortable. You always told me not to try to do everything all at once. And now you're trying to do it. And now I'm uh, missing out on everything. Bye, Dad. Love you. Gotta go. Hey, Becca, I, I love you too. Family time. How Am I Doing is an official selection at the Holly Shorts Film Festival, an official selection at the Soho International Film Festival, an official selection at Studio City Film Festival, and at the Golden Door International Film Festival. Ken can also be seen on The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel on Amazon Prime. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Chisa Hutchinson, Phil Knowlton, and Ken Perlstein.
excited to talk to all of you guys, especially having recently seen um, all of your works that are having the distinction of being released during COVID year and sort of um, coming to the festival circuit. You know, Chisa, I know you guys have been doing some drive-through film festivals where you can actually, you know, go and see the the film in the car, see see the subject in the car, and and that's such a neat um, way of working around this bizarre year. Phil, I know you guys were like at the Beloit Festival a week or two before COVID hit, and Ken, I know you're kind of working with Holly Shorts on a lot of the digital um, rollouts and things that they're doing right now. Uh, but just finished, it, yeah, yeah. In general, I'm really curious for you guys. Um, some of you worked on the writing and the the filmmaking for your projects long before uh, COVID hit the United States. And I imagine this is not how you and your production teams envisioned the rollout. So I'd love to hear from each of you. Uh, maybe we could start uh, with Chisa and then go Chisa, Ken, Phil. Uh, talk a little bit about how this threw a, a wrench in the timeline and how you guys had to adapt your process of bringing your project to screen, big screens, little screens uh, this year. Yeah, um, <laughs> the project definitely started a long time ago. <laughs> I actually wrote the script as a play in a graduate class at MIU. Yeah, uh, so I, it, yeah, it was basic, it was homework, um, the script and um, I've, I had readings of it as a play and I, I, someone came to one of the readings and saw it and said, this would actually make a really great film. And he got the, the rights to it. And um, I wrote and hired me to, you know, adapt it into a screenplay, um, which then just sort of sat on a shelf because he had a baby. And we also had some, we'll say artistic differences. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. because he was wanting to put the, the focus somewhere where I, I was not really interested in having the focus. Also, I'm not, I'm not sure if you can hear this, I, whatever. there's some weird noises going on in the background. I'm not sure. Yeah, I do hear that. Hold on a second. Okay. Okay. That's okay. Um, why don't we give, why don't we jump, we'll jump to Ken and we'll come back around to you. Maybe whatever it is, if it's aliens or weather or something. Oh, it's a motorcycle. Okay. Oh, why don't we why don't we go to Ken and we'll come back to you. Maybe they'll drive oh, away. People. Okay, Ken. A long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. I may use that. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, it's it's weird because I, I wrote uh just about 2016, I was in a 48 hour short film challenge. So I wrote and uh started my first screenplay, which was a short film. And uh, it was a lot different than this. It was a you know really heavy, emotional, but it was also autobiographical in some ways. So I, um, you know, I, after that, it was, uh, we all know what happened in 2016. It was nice and toxic. So I took a break, start, tried to start a few other projects and then put those in the back burner. And by that spring of uh, 2018, I was, uh, Probably before then, I was I was uh, so spring of 2017. I was ready to go again, start writing, and I started to form this idea. You know, I was working with a mentor because I was still learning uh, as a writer; had a lot to learn still. But as we kept going, I uh, I formulated this idea centered around this guy. You know, based on second chances, and I thought you know one of the things my mentor was teaching me was the stakes, building the stakes in each scene. You know, what are the stakes? The stakes have absolutely got to be high in each scene. 
And uh, I, I, you know, the more and more I just uh, started coming out with it, you know, based on this character, the situations, um, also around my own, you know, uh, personal life too, you know, being in recovery, uh, you know, what is that like? What would it have been like to have been divorced with a kid, you know, and coming back? So all these, you know, uh, things I wanted to interject in it. And um, I just kept writing and writing and writing and uh, till I sent it to a friend of mine. Uh, so I, I had, I think by midway through, I knew exactly what I wanted to have happen with it. I knew exactly where I wanted this character to go. Uh, I didn't know much about production. Uh, I didn't know much about writing a series, but I just kept writing. And a friend of mine encouraged me. She, uh, she played my agent in it. Really good writer. She's uh, great. And the pilot. Yeah. Oh yeah. my God. Hayes, she's, Hayes. she's hilarious. Hayes. And, uh, you know, we, been you know working with the same acting teacher for years and years we're all kind of studio based and uh but she's also an amazing writer with a lot of experience and so i i remember i got to 45 pages and i sent her you know this thing and uh i expected i just wanted her feedback but uh she texted me the next day and she's like we have to sit down uh we have to sit down and talk about this because this is really good it's really really good uh, so she really, uh, she was great. She printed everything out and, uh, I kept going for another 40 pages. So I had 80 pages, uh, the first reading we have, uh, we had 18 actors and, uh, you know, almost 30 other people in our apartment listening to the read. <laughs> so it was kind of cool. Uh, I, you know, it, it just kind of, there's something when you really hear it out loud for the first time, it was a, it was a real journey for me. I don't know if I'm making sense, but everything, uh, every character to me popped out. Uh, you know, it's, it's a process. Uh, you know, I picked my director right away because I'm impulsive. Uh, the thing was that after the reading, nobody wanted to leave. They all wanted to talk. They all wanted to keep talking about it. They all wanted to ask, keep asking questions and talk around about where they could see it sorry, going. So, around when, when in the like uh, chronology is, no, it's okay. About when in the chronology is this, uh, when you're getting to the, the read stage, like what year? Oh, goodness. Uh, I think our, our first read was in I think 2000, the beginning of the uh, very beginning of uh, 2000, actually late, uh, late 2017. Okay. December, December. I was just curious, um, especially because you have, you know, this precocious actress who plays your young daughter. Yeah. Who's so great and such a steen stealer. Yeah. Uh, steen, scene stealer. Goodness. Um, and I was just curious if, you know, you've had to account for her aging during <laughs> the I process did, of bringing you know, this it, to the screen. Sure. I mean, there was a, because I remember somebody recommending her. And I'm like, God, I need two kids for this right now, tonight. I need two kids. Right. Uh, so, yeah, because it was a classroom scene. And the other kid who played um, the classmate was amazing, too. His name's Dimitri. The other kid who played um, the classmate was amazing, too. His name's Dimitri. So, yeah, I love I him. Got her, I remember uh, sending her parents a script, and it had some F-bombs in it. And her character says a few F-bombs. So she was around hey, about 11 and a half years old. Okay. Her parents were like, this is great. This is fine. This is perfect. Yeah, she wait. gets to say prick in the first episode, too, right? Like that's... She gets to say fuck. She gets to say prick. <laughs> uh, you know, fuck yeah. There's that scene. That's going, awesome. Fuck yeah. Like, um, 
So, yeah, I mean, it, her, she aged. I mean, you know, things go through a process. So uh, I went through several directors and rewrites and uh, I had to let five scenes go. Wow. Uh, really, I got a really good friend of mine who's a kind of a big time director. He looked at it. He said, this is all great, but how do you want to move this story along? You know, more things to learn. So, you know, uh, I had to take five scenes out of it. So it was like 52 pages. And again, you know, you go through another process. We were in limbo for a while. Uh, so I got a, I got my friend to produce, my friend Jen Plotsky, who's amazing. Uh, I've acted with her. She's also, she has her hands in so many projects and she just, she knows how to pick things up and get shit done, you know. Uh, and then we found uh, uh, my actress who plays my ex-wife, Amanda, who's a really good friend of mine. Uh, she recommended Colleen Davy James to direct it. So I sent the script to Colleen. She's like, I was wondering when the fuck you were going to call me <laughs> to do this. And we found a way to get this done. She's like, you know, I think my first director wanted me to do a sizzle reel, which I was uncomfortable with. I don't want to sizzle. I want to do the whole thing. And, uh, Colleen's like, you know, we're going to cut this in half. So that's what we did. Uh, we rearranged some scenes. We cut it in half. And one of the most important things, which I was talking to uh, Phil about before this, was uh, I wanted more of, I needed a young girl's perspective in this, especially with writing her character. I had the idea. I had exactly where I wanted her character to go. But, you know, as a 51-year-old white male, you can only do so much for an 11-year-old girl. So uh, I, I love, yeah, I love that you actually had that thought. Honestly, I think more directors should um, shift the lens a little bit so that they are thinking about that rather than trying to write for an 11 year old girl. Um, it, you know, as it was cool. The parents came over. I think it was a few months before we shot it. And I said, you know, I have some changes, but I really want you to play his conscience in a lot of ways. So how would you say this? And we sat at my table and we just improv And, uh, you know, from there, we uh, came up with a really tight script. Uh, we did location. We did, you know, we broke everything down. I also didn't want to shoot this without being able to pay my actors. It was really sure. important. Um, can, can, can I, I just want to let Chisa interject here because I think sure. the, the process that you're talking about, um, writing from a lens that, you know, incorporates other viewpoints is so um, important. And sure. Chisa's done that both as a playwright and as a screenwriter. So um, Chisa, can we resume? You were talking a little bit about the artistic differences in bringing the subject to the screen. Um, oh, yeah. And I was just over here thinking, like listening to Ken and um, just thinking about how um, the world would be like a much better place if, <laughs> if everybody just sort of took into account like how their own uh you know their own personal perspectives like um you know affect a work or, or sure. affect their ability to you know represent um certain folks um oh yeah but <laughs> and to that point the artistic differences that i had were with the um the guy he's a white guy um who and i'm a black lady in case anybody was wondering um like uh yeah he he uh, the the script is about a filmmaker a white guy filmmaker who has been basically sort of um uh, capitalizing on um like black urban culture 
Um, so he, you know, made his uh, a film about a kid who was, you know, trying to join a gang and that kid wound up dying and his film wound up getting all these accolades and he sort of built his success on the death of this kid is really what the script is about. Well, this guy, after I turned in the first draft of the screenplay, the filmmaker, the white guy filmmaker was like, well, white gate, wait, white guy documentary filmmaker named Phil, by the way, who is. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, Phil. <laughs> um, Who's that's yeah. that's literally where the resemblance stops, though. Jason Biggs' character uh, yeah, in your yeah. movie is nothing like here's, the, the Philip Knowlton. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the white guy filmmaker that I was working with to adapt it into a film um, read the script and and said, um, "Yeah, I just I was thinking maybe more we could like." focus on the kid and why he joins the gang <laughs> and I was like oh that's a different that's a different story it's not gonna work right well so I just sort of I, we just and it just so happened that he had a baby at that time and so he got super busy and I um and the option expired and I just sort of quietly let it and um and I didn't I didn't bother to ask about <laughs> renewing it and I'm glad I didn't because right um, Lanny Zapoy who um, directed the film and was the producer she <laughs> called me up um and in an instance of what I can only describe as white girl magic explained to me that oh some foundation had just given her a million dollars and told her to go make some art <laughs> Jesus. Um, yeah. my, my girl magic. Really? So, um, yeah. And Lanny, Lanny gets it. Like Lanny, um, she, ah, man, I mean, you, you saw the film. She just did. Well, the a irony too. I mean, we're going to talk about your film more specifically in a little bit. Mm -hmm. She said, but the, the irony from for Lanny writing a character who's essentially made you know, he's he bought a house off the success of the documentary that is at the exploitation of, you know, these, as he, he calls them black youths of Harlem. Um, you know, and I think for her to take this million dollars in her white girl magic and make this film um, right. through that lens must have been a really reflective experience for her. And I'm glad, I, I'm glad too that you had a female director because Jason Biggs is surrounded by really strong women of color actresses uh, throughout the film. But yeah, I think I think that ended up being a great decision on your part. <laughs> so I just I just go where the wind blows. <laughs> well, um, good direction. And then. It, yeah, it, it, it blew in, in the best direction. So I, I lucked out. And then Phil, uh, since we uh, took your name in vain, uh, <laughs> um, your your process too, just like Chisa and Ken. It sounds you know for for both of them, this has been sort of a multi year arc. I know that mm -hmm. your involvement with Kupenda started um, many years ago, and mm -hmm. um, we've talked a little bit about this experience as well for you, because you know some of these children that you started working with for the film are now almost fully grown right um, so tell us a little bit about how you found this story and and why you decided to tell it and what that process was like sure so i connected with uh cindy bauer who is the co-director of uh the foundation kupenda for the children um, which helps kids with disabilities in on the east coast of kenya and i connected with her in 2000 i want to say six on a project I was doing, a bunch of my friends were 
cycling across the country um, for diabetes. And they were raising money for her uh, organization as well. And so we did a small, um, a small part of that documentary um, was about Kupenda. Um, and so, you know, I just sort of followed her story and, and these kids stories um, over the years and just seeing how, you know, the, the organization's been growing. And uh, I want to say in 2015, uh, reconnected with Cindy and she mentioned to me this project that they were going to take three of their kids to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. And you know, I asked her if, you know, if they were, if they were going to document it in any way, and they didn't really have any plans to. And, you know, I told her that, you know, they need to, they need to make sure they get that on film just to, just so that the world can see, of course, you know, yeah. this, this amazing journey. And, uh, you know, the more people I talked to, they, they were, you know, basically, I didn't think that necessarily I would, I should be the one to do this, but um, people were basically like, you have a chance to, you know, go film, you know, these kids up going up Kilimanjaro, you have to, you have to take that. And so, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, a few months later, it was actually over New Year's Eve or over New Year's 2015, going into 2016, um, we filmed the climb and, you know, I was actually just planning the, the goal was just to make a short doc. Um, and like many, you know, film and doc projects, um, they sort of just snowball into a whole different beast. Um, when I came back to LA, um, I shared some of the footage I got with some, uh, producers, uh, that I connected with through film, film independent. Um, and they just, you know, fell in love with, with the kids and, you know, what they were able to do for their community. And, you know, they basically convinced me that this needed to be a feature film. And so um, we were able to, to get some, some funding to, for me to go back and, and do some follow-up stories. So this was actually, for me, the first time I'd ever, you know, all my doc projects prior to this were just sort of passion projects that I filmed and edited and did everything, you know, solo. Um, and this was the first time that I was able to, you know, have producers on board and get money to, you know, actually, um, you know, we brought on another editor. Um, but so that process kind of <laughs> dragged things out quite a bit um, because, you know, in the past it would just be me editing, you know, um, and when I feel like the project's done and it's ready to go out, then that's what it is. But uh you know, it was really a, a, an amazing experience, but also, you know, uh, realizing that a, a collaboration um, with a number of, of filmmakers is going to take longer. And so um, we edited uh, up until 2017, 2018, and then, you know, started the whole process of submitting to film festivals and trying to figure out, you know, where it's going to live. Um, and, and that took that took a while. The, the timing of it all, um, you know, was, couldn't be more, uh, <laughs> curious, you know, we, we ended up premiering at, at Beloit film festival, um, I think in, in February of this year and, and, you know, it was an amazing premiere, but the, the irony, I remember I'm at the, the Chicago airport ready to fly home. And there was, um, there was some sort of convention, like a Comic-Con type convention in Chicago Yep. that everyone was I had worried for that. was going to be the first big uh, spreader. 
So this is so funny, too, because you had texted me like a week beforehand. Um, so Ken and Chisa, Phil and I went to college together mm-hmm. and I went to high school with Chisa, which is awesome. So I'm glad to know you guys for this long. And Ken, um, I just met this year, so <laughs> he doesn't know how nuts I am. But um, <laughs> I uh, I actually had tickets for that convention. Um, I was supposed to interview Mark Ruffalo that day. Wow. Thanks, honey. Um, and my son has really, uh, well, before this year, he had really um, rough asthma and he's only four. And so my co-host and I had these tickets to go to the convention and Phil had texted me like, hey, we're going to the Beloit Film Festival. Do you want to meet up in Chicago for like a meal or something? And that was my last like social invitation for 2020. <laughs> so I remember it very clearly. And I, I wish we could have gotten together in yeah. hindsight now because it didn't end up COVID didn't end up coming to Chicago for another month, but uh, that was just so funny because I was like fighting with, you know, reason whether or not to go to the convention and we ended up not going. Um, and I think Mark Ruffalo ended up not going either. So it, it <laughs> worked out, but that was so funny because I remember um, that'll be like, that's the last normal memory I have. Of yeah. <laughs> yeah. I literally, I think moved my flight sooner so I could get out yeah. of there. Yeah, like you guys seem nervous. <laughs> I got I got a couple of your, your a couple of our mutual friends were texting me too and uh, sounded a little bit jumpy and I was like, yeah, everyone go home and <laughs> buy toilet paper and don't don't leave. <laughs> right. But yeah, um, so that that kind of is a good segue though into my next question for all three of you and um and whoever wants to jump in first can, um, your process. I mean, all of your subjects are very timeless, regardless of, you know, 2020 and COVID, right? So I think, Phil, your story would be an inspiration in any audience, uh, any time period, although I think we are getting a lot of awareness around ableism um, in America. And so I think a story like this is particularly powerful and poignant right now. Um, Chisa, obviously, you wrote this many years ago, but it's, it's almost heartbreaking how it can it can be told in any time period a story about you know racism and and violence and white centering and and white tears and fragility and then ken your story you know sort of an alcoholic who is um looking for second chances and and taking them and making them um but with you know the, the the wit that your show brings all topics that you could watch whenever and and still appreciate but I guess how have how did you picture <laughs> the world receiving your projects versus you know how the process currently is going to find distribution? Um, it, how does your story translate for 2020 in a way that you didn't necessarily intend uh, when you wrote it and tried to first bring it to the world? Wow, that's a good question. Um, hmm. I, I think it's, I, I think the good thing about this is that it, 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 it always evolves. It evolves in, uh, in real time. So, uh, yeah, I mean, people, it, it, people can still relate to the difficulties, um, the steps forward and the steps back the difficulties of relationships, even this, in this time period, you know? Uh, so, and the good thing is that the story will stay the same, but the script is easy to edit around this, if that makes sense. 
yeah, I guess you you do have the luxury with a series of being able to kind of, <clears throat> if you want to handle the COVID era, you know, on on the show, you're able to to do that. Whereas I think, you know, for Cheese That Fell, maybe you guys feel differently since your story um, captures a moment of time that that can be told in any time. But I don't know. What do you guys What do you guys feel about the audience you wrote for versus the the world that's receiving it? Uh, in the case of the subject, it, I mean, again, it's an evergreen topic and you know, like how, how, uh, you know, all the sort of insidious ways that white supremacy and, um, you know, uh, Eurocentrism just manifest. Um, but I, th I think the difference, um, between, you know, when I wrote it and, and, you know, when it was a play and now is that the audience feels readier for it, like the audience that I intended it for anyway, seems readier for it, which is to say, you know, um, even even well-meaning white folks, you know, <laughs> like who um, who might, you know, Cas sort of casual racists, casual racists, casual racists. <laughs> microaggressive you know, racists, afternoon racists, you know, um, yeah, I just yeah, just all the the sort of I think with with. Um, I mean the the basically the revolution that's the racial revolution that's going on right now, um, and everything that has happened after the death of George Floyd. Um, I mean there have been countless others like George Floyd, but for some reason I think like the confluence of people, you know, being being home, being angry, being restless because of COVID already, you know, just sort of catapulted them out into the streets and um, hope, I'm hoping that it will catapult them into um, places where they can see this film also yeah. um, and really receive it um, in a way, because I, I, I really, I don't mean for it to be judgmental or, um, but, but, you know, I just, I just want folks to be aware of all the little things that they do <laughs> you know that may not be like you know oh shooting an unarmed black man but certainly um feed into the 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 it's it's the same mentality right um, no you're totally right and I think that I mean I live in a part of just outside Chicago where it's like a liberal bastion of of you know perspectives and opinions in our neighborhoods but um, there's a lot of yard sign anti-racists and it's like, that's great. You know, you get your black lives matter sign up, but when you, uh, the scene particularly, um, between Jason Biggs and, um, is it Anjanu Ellis? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So she is, I know. Oh my God. Um, that scene, <laughs> that scene felt very much to me, like some of your plays that I've, I've read and heard. So like that to me was, I was going to ask you, is that, was that a scene that you envisioned on a stage? Because that just, oh my God, I was just like cemented to my seat watching that. But I think that that now that we've moved a little bit beyond the immediate sort of get get on the right side of Black Lives Matter, get on the right side of the George Floyd and these awful um these just awful, un unthinkable, white supremacist-driven uh, police violence against black lives, it, the discussion that they have and seeing how a white person spins and manipulates and 
does everything that they can to self-preserve um, when faced with their own racism. Um, that scene is is just it's magnificent, and it's you know if I if I could pick a scene that I've seen anywhere to represent what the four years I've spent doing a lot of anti-racism reading and activism and work feels like, it's that scene. Um, because a lot of white people expect anti-racism to be very hand-holding and you bring them, you know, bring them along delicately because, you know, you can't make them cry about it and you can't scare them away from anti-racism work or they'll never come back. But, you know, it's it, that fragility um, and, and being vulnerable and being the one to be uncomfortable doing that work. White people really have to own that if this country is ever going to change. And that scene is, is just the best ever experience um, I've seen on a screen for that, that kind of um, interaction. I don't know. I just, I can't say enough about it. Well, thank you. Can you just, can you just write all the reviews? Sure. <laughs> Happily. <laughs> I, yeah, I've been like on the edge of my seat for today just because obviously no one else I am connected to has seen it. Cause I'm out here in Chicago and you know, our film festivals, I mean, we, we don't even have like a drive drive in option for anything out here. We're pretty, pretty battened down for about nine months now. So um, I've just been excited to talk to somebody about it <laughs> for a while. Um <laughs> And then Phil, same same question for you. Um, sort of how how has you know either around ableism or around just the 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 story that you're trying to tell? Because I know in Africa there's very different stigmas around disability, especially physical mm -hmm. disability. Um, but how has the audience that you filmed for you know and when you finished the project um, years ago? has there been moving of the needle on as, as far as you and as far as Gupenda sees, um, on this topic? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, so definitely, you know, in the times of COVID, um, you know, people with disabilities, um, have been especially, you know, hit hard and, you know, the, the irony of it all is that a lot of the changes that we've made to adapt, you know, as far as just society as a whole to adapt to COVID in terms of working from home and, you know, a lot of these things, these are things that folks with disabilities have been, you know, asking for, for forever, for years. That's a great point. And so it's, you know, it's, we basically shown how easily a lot of these changes can be made to accommodate people living with disabilities, but we don't, we won't, make that change until it impacts us and um obviously that you know that's a problem and so i think it it's definitely um and then you know with films like uh crip camp you know doing so well on the mainstream level it seems like people are definitely being you know are definitely a little more mindful of, of uh uh you know disability rights and and trying to be uh, more inclusive in general. Um, now I, I feel like, you know, we need a lot more than just one film or a, a handful of films, but it seems like, um, in terms of representation, I don't know if you, you followed, you know, the, the story with C making the film about the, the autistic girl, um, that had people kind of 
you know, upset that she didn't cast um, an autistic actor. Yeah. Um, so I think it's great that, you know, we're having these conversations and they're obviously long overdue. Um, so I think, you know, little by little, it seems like, you know, whether it, it takes COVID, you know, to sort of bring that out is, is unfortunate, but, you know, hopefully, you know, change is on the way. Um, yeah. Well, I watched, um, and, and if you haven't seen it, you should on Hulu, um, Sarah Paulson's in this kind of, you know, it's kind of a, a fun, if you don't want to get too mentally over invested in a short movie, uh -huh. um, in this film run, okay. um, it's about a mother who it's like a Munchausen's by proxy situation where she's like drugging her, her daughter, you know, to the, that's the premise. I'm not spoiling anything, mm -hmm. but like the premise is that she's drugging her daughter to keep her in a wheelchair and keep her sick so that she can keep taking care of her and kind of prevent her from going out into the world and living her life. Mm -hmm. um, but the actress who plays her daughter actually does have a physical disability. Um, and, you know, it shows what a, a accessible home looks like. And it sh right. it's, it's great to see that. And then I also think... Um, I've been following, I mean, everyone in my house, because I have an eight and a half year old daughter who just saw um, uh, Enola Holmes, the uh, Sherlock Holmes little sister on Netflix okay. movie that Millie Bobby Brown stars in and produced. And she's uh, deaf in one ear, Millie Bobby mm -hmm. Brown is. And she's become very candid about that in interviews and how she has to um, make requests on set, you know, for Stranger Things to have things filmed differently and sound editors and her have to work together in a different way um so yeah i think you're right that that there's a different level of energy now in that conversation mm -hmm. um here in america and hopefully globally than there has ever been before um well my last question for you guys and then if you have questions for each other i think that would be really fun for our audience but my my last question for you is what have you watched this year um that's sort of been your lifeline in a, in a world where I'm sure you guys are, you know, sometimes sitting and writing and editing for, for many hours and at the same desk in your, you know, homes or, you know, kind of feeling trapped like the rest of us are, what's sort of your lifeline escapist 2020 viewing pleasure? Um, and why Ken, you want to start? Um, uh, sure. I mean, I have, I have several things, uh, as, as opposed to, watching as well um you know my wife and i like to watch several different kinds of series together so this past year we just to take us out of everything uh we watched money heist which was uh which was fun <laughs> i haven't yeah i haven't seen that yet i really want uh, to we've watched um god we've watched uh, a couple of israeli uh episodics we've watched um i'm watching ratched right now which oh like, the nurse uh, one ratchet yeah oh god <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh dark she's yeah that's what i mean sarah paulson is like she, I, she's a master mistress i guess of of dark roles uh, but the the portrayal that she brings yeah. to these really crazy um strange psychotic beings is <laughs> it's i mean it's right like, you know it's it, it's you, you want to root for her but the same yeah time. you root for her to continue having these crazy performances but you don't want to know that person and no. <laughs> but no, you no, no, you'd no. really would like run me. i think you should you and your wife no. should try that it's like only an hour and a half long and it was right it's good um it's a good one. the other thing 
is uh, I'm, you know, I'm still doing uh, stand up. So that's been really good. That's been a really good outlet for me. Uh, although virtual stand up is just, it's still, <laughs> the concept is really strange. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We're, so we're mourning the, the deaths of a few of our favorite uh, comedy clubs in Chicago, uh, Improv Olympic and yeah. Second City is going through um, <sighs> like discussions about, I guess, new, new acquisition, hopefully to, to There's save There's a the lot theater. of, you know, yeah, my home club in New York, Stand Up New York, is uh, doing some innovative things. I mean, they're using a a large church in in the same neighborhood uh, with a limited amount of people uh, to do some shows. And uh, when I was when I'd go back and forth to New York, we did comedy in a park. Oh, that's great! It was a lot of fun. Uh, but still, that and um, uh, you know that's what keeps me going and and. Uh, through this and I'm always looking for new things to watch even even the reality shows even um, (laughs) you know Below Deck a show called Below Deck I I like that one too on Bravo that's a good one it's silly it's but you know what hey you know what are you gonna do you gotta laugh Phil Phil what about you what have you been watching this year so I I'm notorious for as as far as a filmmaker I've watched so little like film you know i watch so few films but um i've been really into sports docs um i watched the whole um last dance series about jordan um early on um in the pandemic and then recently i i watched on netflix uh the series the playbook which um oh i really want to see that yeah it's really good um just like uh, it's about different coaches and different sports and sort of like what rules they you know apply to you know coaching as well as in life and I don't know something about that feels nice to see people um you know succeeding for themselves and for you know for other people for for their team as well any Um, uh UMBC basketball coaches in the in the movie no I think they need to to add one maybe you need to make that documentary you know I reached out to the the athletic department and they kind of they weren't into it well really they they were at first and then they stopped getting back to me i think someone else maybe approached them with the same ideas oh no i i I should i should call in a couple of favors i've got my (laughs) i still have that award i got from uh from steve levy on my desk here nice (laughs) yeah and i realized i thought i was special i thought i was the only one um she's in ken our college they they created UMBC beat like the number one seed in the NCAA tournament a couple years ago, um, Virginia, like in the opening round and busted everybody's brackets. And like virtually no one has heard of our school outside of the Baltimore <laughs> area, um, which is it's a great school. We've had a an amazing black university president for like 40 years, Dr. Freeman Rabowski's cohort of President Obama and just like a great. It's a wonderful school. And I think Phil and I are both very happy that we ended up there. Mm-hmm. Um but that happened and, and no one had ever heard of us before. So <laughs> it's we're, we're still fixated on it, but I had gotten this award at, when I was the sports editor of the school paper for like loyal, loyalty to retriever athletics or something. So nice. I'm like, I'm going to have to call in a favor. Um, so you, you can make that doc so I can watch it. Yeah. Uh, Chisa, what are you watching? I, I am embarrassed to admit what I've been watching. <laughs> I'm embarrassed to admit 
Um, first of all, so much trash TV because I devoured all the good stuff already. So like at my absolute favorite thing on TV right now is Rami. Um, I was late. I was late on the Rami band. I, I'm so I'm that's like I, on my list. Like freaking third on my love list. it. It is amazing. And it is like exactly the kind of TV that I want to write. Um, but yeah, so like that's my if if that's like at the at the top end of like what is like really scratching the itch of my soul right now, like that then the bottom, like the very bottom is like Real Housewives of Potomac. Oh yeah, that's the best one for sure. Uh, oh my gosh, is there those so people are much crazy out there. I live in Potomac. Did you? No, I much something like that. Oh man, I had some friends from around there when we were in college in Baltimore. That, whew. <laughs> oh my gosh, so dramatic. Yeah. Um, did they go to Churchill High School? Did they go to what now? Churchill High School is a big school in Potomac, and it was like the. Did you have a really good baseball team by chance at that high school? They had a really good football team. Uh, we had a really good football team, but the move, the show nine hundred two one zero was based off of that school man but but like the beverly hills version of it yeah <laughs> i look i'm i'm here for it whatever incarnation <laughs> the housewives um i agree I that like, half of the housewives should be in jail i mean mostly it's, well, it's the that. white ones but <laughs> yeah. although shooting. there was an assault on potomac this season though what was oh. there yeah, I haven't gotten there yet. I haven't gotten there yet. Oh, I'm trying. Oh, Look, okay. I have. I've been watching all of your stuff, all of you guys. So, I mean, between that and the Star Wars recap stuff we do every week, ah. and my two children who are home twenty four seven in in COVID world, it's oh, it's God. been it's been a tough it's been a tough viewing pleasure year. But I'll get there. Sorry, right. um, I'm into Michael Jackson right now. Yeah. Yeah, my, my kids, I mean, we had a lot of Michael Jackson songs on our um, Halloween playlist. So my husband and I were like, are we allowed to keep letting them listen to Thriller? And I'm like, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's Thriller. So stop. <laughs> this dog is just his friend. His friend dog died like a month ago and he doesn't know what to do with himself. So oh. I know. Right. Um so I'm going to mute myself, but if you guys, if you have questions for each other about your own process or like, I mean, I would love, I would love to hear expert, actual experts talk. I'd love to um, hear from you guys a little bit more about your writing process. And, you know, I, I'm more in the, the documentary world, um, but I've sort of have dreams of, you know, um, jumping into the narrative scene and, um, sort of how do you, um, you know, where you pull inspiration from, what, um, when you're writing, how much of it is necessarily uh, about you versus, you know, how do you navigate um, telling your own story and having your own voice versus, um, you know, things that you see that an outside world that inspire you, or I'm just sort of curious, um, you know how you guys navigate the writing process um usually what happens is i see something in the world that pisses me off <laughs> or that confuses me or something and then i and then i try to write something in response to that as a way either of understanding it or um you know dismantling it or or, or um 
Yeah. So, I mean, in this case, it was, um, I saw in the case of the subject, I saw a, oh boy, I saw a, a journalist, like a journalist decided that she was going to, I'm using air quotes here, be homeless for two weeks. Um, and she had like cameras following her around and it was supposed to be this like eye-opening expose on like what it's like to be homeless and like what mm-hmm. homeless experience and all this and it just felt so it just rubbed me all kinds of wrong yeah um, and I just I felt like oh this is your mm, you are trying that on like a Native that's, American headdress at Coachella uh, like that's just right. wow <laughs> so um yeah it just got me thinking about just that line between exploration and exploitation and how you know Mm -hmm. journalists and and documentary filmmakers and really any artist crosses it at some point yeah (laughs) probably like any at any point really we're all doing it and I just um uh, like that photographer Kevin Carter who took that photograph of the young the baby the the, uh, the baby girl she's totally emaciated sitting in the dust um mm. Sudanese, Sudanese baby I think right um you know just sitting in the dirt and there's a vulture sort of hovering behind her waiting for her to die oh. and Kevin Carter said like yeah I waited for 20 minutes for the vulture to spread its wings um but it never did so I just snapped the picture and left Hmm. And I was just like, what the fucking, the what, right? Like, how can you, like, did you pick the, did you give the baby a banana? Like what, what, you know, some, I just, and of course, like he won the Pulitzer for that photograph and then committed suicide shortly after that. Right. And um, I just, I think we risk, you know, losing our humanity when we're trying to, uh, when we turn yeah. others into subjects, you know, like, and it yeah. just, it, it, in, and yeah, so that was a thing that pissed me off, and um, I wrote about it. That was it. <laughs> it's such a great, I, I can't wait for Phil to see it too. So, yeah, talk to him about it. Um, it, it's, yeah, that, that line between when your art is at the, at the cost of exploiting somebody else and, and then all the accolades and the praise that get heaped on usually white people for all of this, um, whether it's, you know, music or, or art uh, that white people, you know, love to love to showcase that they're going through after they do something exploitative and the very centering apologies, um, and you know how they live with that going forward it's at the expense of others it was um really captured nicely in your film Um, well oh go ahead ken i i like to write based on experience based on what i see based on uh Mm -hmm. you know i have several of the projects i'm writing some of that's based on other parents i meet Mm -hmm. kids and and how people behave around each other um one thing I'm writing happened with me and my son you know, last spring. We, uh, you know, broke into a high school to uh, field. And uh, I used to kick field goals in college years awesome. and years and years ago. So I would hop fences, you know, to get my practices in sometimes if I had to. So I took my son to a football field out here. He's Hampton. I'm like, you know, we're going to go to a real football field, the high school field. It had a little no trespassing sign on it. But I'm like, it's AstroTurf. You know, I want him to get on a real field. Uh And sure enough, a little bit of time later, a cop shows up, masks and everything. And, uh, you know, uh, 
And my son totally, in the beginning, he said, dad, we can't, we can't go in. It's trespassing. I'm like, not a big deal. Not a big deal. So of course, police officers waiting for us, you know, an hour later at the edge of the gate. And my son looks up, he goes, Hey, dad did it, man. He did it. He, I told him not to, but he trespassed. Oh, he sold you out. <laughs> oh, he was selling me out under the river. We, I got him over the fence. I had to get my ID on the car and, and, he, and he wouldn't stop. He's like, I told him not to, I told him not to, and, uh, you know, uh, it was, it was kind of funny. I got, you know, we got let go, but I'm like, kid, you would not last in a mafia movie. <laughs> no Lo loyalty <laughs> loyalty is so important <laughs> so i started writing something that that started right from that conflict right from there um that's yeah that's that's hilarious that reminded me didn't you play football at marshall ken i did i did weren't you there when there were like some some famous current nfl or former nfl yeah. people there um i played in i was a walk-on between uh, 1990 and 1992. So I had, uh, we had a few people. We had Troy Brown, which was a big one. Um, he was great. Um, yeah, I mean, we had, uh, and then everybody, Chad Pennington and Randy Moss came after me. But uh, we had a lot of NFL talent still when I was there. So it was a good time. The team kind of, you don't know the story. Uh, Marshall lost their entire team in a plane crash yeah. in 1970. Yeah. So it took a lot of time for them to build up and uh, build back up. So it was an exciting time to be there, exciting time to play and walk on. Yeah, that movie is also like a dagger in the heart sports movie. Guys, we are going to need to park it there for today, but there is still so, so much more to come with my guests. Lisa, Bill, and Ken. You can find links to more info on their works, the subject, Kupenda, and how am I doing in our show notes. Special thanks to our guests, as well as the musicians whom we lovingly sampled today, including the Beastie Boys with the song Sure Shot, and the Creation with the song Making Time off the Rushmore soundtrack. Our theme song, as ever, is Broken Waves by Dylan McKenzie of Dirty Birdie. You can catch our Mandalorian recap show for Season 2, Episode 7, also released today. And please stay tuned for the balance of this indie film series over the next two weeks, wherever you listen to pods. Until next time, pinkies up, people.